0: Hello and welcome to the Deep State Consciousness podcast. Today I'm joined by Luanne Keenan-McKennis. Luanne is a psychotherapist working in the United States and also has certain spiritual interests which no doubt affect her work and that's what I'm gonna be asking her about. So, hello Luanne.
1: Hello Richard, good to be here.
0: Good, Good to have you on. So, tell us how it started for you. This seems to be a standard question. I'm asking at the start of these uh, interviews is were you a spiritually inclined person who got into therapy or were you a therapist who Became involved in spiritual pursuits. How did how did your story play out?
1: Um, I Was always spiritually inclined I guess um, Because I was I think I was having uh, what I might call now mystical experience as a child I started writing poetry as a child and actually, the first half of my life, um, I was a poet and a teacher. I I started to change careers in the mid-90s and started working in this career in, in 1996. So before that, I was teaching college English and, and writing and publishing poetry. And I remember um, making a conscious decision when I was about... Uh, I guess about 32, 33, to uh, look into Buddhism. I was raised Methodist, and then I wasn't active after I left my parents' home, and I started looking into Buddhism in my early 30s, um, around about the time I had a child. And one thing led to another. I just, you know, just was kind of fascinated and just looking into one thing and then another and then another so so that
0: does that coincide with when you moved from teaching work to therapy that looking into Buddhism
1: um well no it was it was roughly before that um because I started changing careers I went I went back to graduate school um in 1993 and i guess i'm talking about the late 80s or around 1990 when i started looking into somewhere between 88 and and 90 my son was born in 1988
0: so was it very accessible where you were in the u.s in the 80s buddhist literature and groups and that kind of thing oh
1: yeah yeah it was not nearly so um so kind of omnipresent as it is now but Mm. the uh the insight meditation movement was um was strong and there were tape recordings um, Barry uh, Massachusetts I believe Wil- Wilkesbury Vermont Wilkesbury Vermont is where the Insight Meditation Center was at that time still there I'm sure and that was um, a couple of teachers um, uh, Sandra Ingerman, for one I'm forgetting some of the other names uh, Jack cornfield was okay. in that. Um, In that group and I kind of started there. I think I started I think I was given some recordings by a a nurse practitioner friend of mine and uh, uh, Just you know (laughs) That was the first little link
0: so I feel I skipped over what you said about um, Childhood mystical experiences a moment ago You you had maybe you could describe what was going on for you there and if you had a context for them or if finding out about spirituality and Buddhism later on Allowed you to look back at those experiences in a different way
1: Yeah, I didn't have a context at all. I just started writing poetry when I was about 10 years old Um, And I don't know um, Let me just let me try and think about how that happened Um, I was always a a reader I guess as a child, but um, my grandmother who was sort of the icon of my childhood Um, started to develop Alzheimer's when I was 10 and died when I was 12 and I I know that I started writing these little poems when I was 10 and I took them to Sunday school class (laughs) and uh, they sort of made a, a big deal of them and I just kept doing that and then I think that probably with her death I that was probably became a place that I really did go into seriously as a kind of escape my parents were both working very hard and, and pretty stressed and uh, my mother, well, both my parents also struggled with depression, so um, and of course, you know, you don't have a context when you're a kid. You you are growing up in the middle of a context that to you is just the, the water and the fishbowl. you know. Mm-hmm. But,
0: um,
1: I think that's probably how I would explain it now.
0: So were you, were you writing poems about the kind of experiences you were having?
1: Um, I was, um, gosh, I was I was wandering around. Uh, this was a small town in Texas, a town of about 500 people. I had a lot of freedom to wander around in the you know the meadows and pastures and interact with the farm animals and and um, so all of that was a very rich experience for me. And starting starting with. I was, uh, when my mother started working when I was a very small child, I was spending my, my daytimes with my grandmother and on her little farm. So, you know, I literally had little, little stories and scenarios going in my head with, you know, the different parts of the chicken yard were different parts of the village and the different trees were, you know, different little abodes and that sort of thing. So I had this whole little kingdom in a way, and I think that just. Um, so I do know that some of that early poetry was about um, some some of that nature experience, and that it seems to me there's kind of a seamless. Uh, that's that's not separate from spiritual experience. I don't I don't uh, think of any. There does not seem to be a a break in the continuum, although when I was in my 30s, by that time, you know, the graduate school developed intellect, you know, it was an intellectual decision to, you know, I'm going to look into this with my intellect, but it was, um, and so that's always, I guess, in the way that Tim Freak talks about the, the two different faculties that we have of of uh, the, you know, the scientific objective experience and the subjective mystical experience. I guess I I was, you know, I had both of those going by that time I was looking into Buddhism, but I didn't really uh, think about them as separate or, or uh, you know, I didn't have that frame, the frame of reference for it that I have now.
0: And how was your experience of Buddhism? Did you find it transformative or did it open up? spirituality for you what was that like getting into it
1: uh, it, it was just interesting it didn't uh, didn't it didn't solve my problems but it was interesting because so much of what i was reading and hearing uh about people's experience basically they're talking about experiences of of learning to meditate and you're trying to learn to meditate and um And I could, uh, I also didn't know this at the time. I didn't know this until much, much later. But I pretty had some pretty strong uh, attention deficit uh, symptoms, and so struggling with, um, you know, focusing and just managing stress and. Uh, just just getting hold of the mind as a set of resources, you know, and just getting, sort of getting, trying to get hold of that and, and slow it down. <laughs> um, all that resonated, I think. But, and you know, then um, I'm trying to think what would have been the next, I'm not sure what the next link in the chain was, but I think it just, it just was a s- kind of slow continuum from that point on as far as, Interest in spirituality.
0: Okay, you said it didn't solve your problems. So were, were you going into it with problems you were hoping that spirituality would address?
1: I think so. I think so. I was. I was um, very stressed as a young mother, stressed in my marriage, um, uh, working, still working, and and working in childcare, and just managing. Of stress and and always trying to keep the writing going that was probably the biggest factor I had by that time um, uh, let's see I had well I published quite a bit of poetry and I had in the 1990 I won a fairly major poetry prize and so I was really trying to push that career um, and and at the same time, you know, I was trying to, to be a mom of a baby and a toddler. And, <laughs> um, I don't think that, you know, it's, I, I think for, I think for writers, I think parent work and parenting are always a struggle to some degree. Yeah, sure. and, um, so, yeah.
0: So then at some point you, the, the spiritual journey progresses and you become interested in psychotherapy. You must have become interested in it because... You became a psychotherapist so
1: what led yeah. you down that
0: path because it's fairly dramatic to have a substantial career change at that point yeah. as well yeah
1: well it was partly circumstantial um it was partly that i had a lot of therapy myself and I, I learned a lot and i it it seemed to be very beneficial and very um a very easy thing to take advantage of and then my uh, teaching situation at that time, there, the, in the United States, the uh, universities were two-tiered as far as staff and professoriate instructors, which is what I was, um, were not, those were not permanent positions for the most part in, in the 80s. I don't know when that changed. It, well, it changed sometime in the late 90s after I left, at least at where I was, which was Virginia Tech. Um, but those weren't permanent positions, so most people would, um, you do that for five years and then you'd either go part-time or you would step into a permanent position at another university. And by that time, I was not prepared to move around. I had a child and and, and uh, we had separated and we were both figuring out ways to stay in the same geographical area, you know, with our child. So I, I was looking for another career and a poet friend of mine said, "What what else do you think? And I just the first thing I came out of my mouth surprised me. I said, well, I could be a therapist. And uh, so there were some programs close by to get retrained, and and I very quickly got into that. um, Yeah, So and that turned out to be a very good fit because I'm I'm best one-on-one. I'm not great in front of a room full of people. (laughs) Still not.
0: And how did you find that experience of going through therapy and training in therapy contrasted with the Buddhism and and the spirituality you've been involved in,
1: ah, contrasted, well, um, and I guess you're talking about. Uh, I mean, therapy has been was very secular, and it, and there was a lot of uh, attention paid. I guess careful attention. By therapists to sort of stay out of the spiritual questions at that time i don't know if that's where you're going with that but... well i'm
0: going just to, i'll clarify luana yeah. i've had um with previous guests and what I'm, what I'm interested to explore is um the relationship really i suppose between psychotherapy and spirituality where they complement and where they contradict and do they contradict okay yeah. so maybe in one in a sort of non-dual spirituality you've got the sense of this at the core, there is this deep acceptance that everything is okay as it is. There's no you that needs to be changed.
1: Yes. And
0: psychotherapy uh-huh. is, uh-huh. at least on the surface, about changing a you. So there seems to be a contradiction, but is there a yeah. contradiction? These kind of questions. Yeah. And yeah. I suppose also I'm interested in how you found them different in a transformational sense. Like with does sitting mindfully being with yourself open up transformation in some ways, like you would have done in the Buddhist practice. As opposed to say, what you might have done in a psychotherapeutic setting of more going into your past and talking about where thought could have accumulated, they seem to be two different, maybe complementary ways of engaging with the self. And I'm I'm interested in how people experience and find that both with yourself and then, like, we'll come on to like with clients and how that pans out.
1: Yeah, I, I I understand what you're saying. I think that goes right to the core of it, and I would say that uh, putting that together for myself has been a a very long and gradual process. So I did a lot uh, with myself. I did a lot of uh, processing of the the story of the past for a long time. And I remember a therapist saying to me uh, at one point, this was something that really stuck in my mind, that anyone who was in therapy uh, over 35 had spiritual issues and that that may have been a trigger actually that may have been right around the time that I started to look into Buddhism Um, I you know I can't exactly point to when it happened but at some point the story of the past becomes integrated and and for me that um, has enabled me to get more and more and more into the present moment and i think i'm a very late bloomer in that way um and then with clients the way that translates from the other side would be that um i think it's carl rogers uh that um the unconditional positive regard is the single most um consistent predictor of success, right, in, in therapy, and so that's always been kind of the, the central, the foundation stone of the work that I do, and, and just watching the way that works, and, and as I watch the way that works on a client, you know, learning more and more and more to, to do that for myself. But as I said, I'm a light bloomer. I've been very <laughs> slow to mature, I think.
0: Well, that's. I mean, there's, there's quite a few things there to unpack. But I mean, I think the thing about um, anyone over the age of 35 who's interested, now an, an interest, is interested in or going through therapy has a kind of spiritual issue. Uh, I, I, I won't maybe dwell on why age 35, unless you wish to. But um, yeah. I wonder, how do you see psychological issues then maybe differently to a secular psychotherapist do you see issues that manifest in the psyche as always or sometimes or potentially having um a more spiritual depth to them that our spiritual yearnings masquerade as our dysfunction sometimes is that a a position you take
1: Hmm, let me think about that let me just drop back for a second and see if I can follow a train here because, you know, having said, having repeated what the person said to me about anyone over 35 of spiritual issues, I'm not sure that I buy that. I think it really rang a bell for me at the time mm-hmm. and I, and I, you know, it was a big trigger, but um, I'm not, I'm not sure that I, I can make any sense of that out of that now in the first place, 35 to me sounds like, just unbelievably young. (laughs) And, you know, it's certainly, you know, do we not all have spiritual questions, issues, yearnings at at any age? And, you know, that sounds so simplistic to me now. Um, And I do see now, if there's one simple thing that I can say, one generality that I guess I'm still very comfortable with, it seems to be that perceiving the self as a victim is the quintessential psychological error that is, you know, that, that, is, that is a big obstacle that is sometimes very hard to move. And depending on how, how firmly stuck people are there or not, that's kind of a, a predictor of how fast they Heal and move on and, and relaunch themselves. I think. So now, I, if you will restate your question, maybe we can totally connect my answer with it. I don't know. Yeah, I think
0: okay. Because that that's um, I think there is maybe a gap there between the question and the answer. So let's see if we can.
1: Yeah.
0: What was uh, my I I've, I'm lost in your interesting. Training no, that's right. So
1: you what were what saying.
0: Do you see what we could call psychological dysfunction as having? A spiritual route so we've done away with the over 35 thing okay yes. at any age um so, so for example um it would be like it, it are our our uh, psychological issues arising out of a yearning for something deeper that they're not immediately what they they appear to be so um issues of the body saying with appearance do they Point to a deeper sense of um, a search for meaning around what it is to be in a body um, as a, a soul trapped in a body. So that's not a, that's not a great analogy, perhaps, but um, I suppose what I find with people is when you enter into what appear to be uh, quite often irrational streams of thought about themselves, then there's a in the depths there is a rationality and a spiritual yearning that is is going on, um, right. and I wonder. Yeah, if you conceptualize things that way and then your response was the sense of victimhood is something that
1: Yeah, and and the way I would describe that sense of victimhood is that there's the the person has a sense of being cut off without resources and um, Doesn't have a sense of a core uh, goodness or strength that Is accessible and and then on the other hand the next person might very well have that that sort of doesn't have the victim reflex and does have this sort of core goodness thing that is recognizable and this may not have anything to do with they may not have any formal spiritual spiritual tradition at all or they may have one you know it doesn't seem to doesn't seem to connect with whether or not they have a a formal orthodox you know um uh connection there
0: so are you talking about a perception of self there? how people fundamentally perceive
1: well i'm talking about a perception of self that might not even be conscious on their part um it's just a reflex um a reflex to connect with uh just kind of an innate kindness and a reflex to connect with that as opposed to a reflex to to you know that that vibration of, of feeling victimized and and i know with myself um i mean that quickly gets into you know talking about experiences of mood changes and and i I know that, you know, what I can experience is I can get triggered into that place where there is a sense of isolation and not having resources and not, um, being able to, you know, help the self (laughs) and, and then I can get out of it. And, and, and when I'm out of it, my reality is just completely different.
0: So what does that transition then look like for you and how do you affect it with clients that they could find a different conception of self?
1: it seems to have the most to do with how, how well I'm taking care of myself and how much I'm taking time to be in the moment. And when I'm being in the moment, the, the creative uh, reflex is kind of automatically operating. And so there's a sense of being connected, you know, to, to being. And so certainly the, uh, the work that, you know, we've, We've done I don't know if you, this will make a connection in the context of the talk, but uh, the work that we've done in Glastonbury has really given me a vocabulary for. It's been some of the most most immediate experience of of the being in the moment mm-hmm. and and con- connected to being with a capital B that I've had, and and so that's given me a kind of a frame of reference to plug some of my earlier what I would say mystical experience called mystical experience into. And, um, and I, it seems that it's, it's a matter of sitting down and breathing and taking time and getting out of the intellect, out of the, out of the head. <laughs> and that's, that's not something that I've been really good at, I would say, until the last couple of years. So it seems like what is happening is that my, my work in my private practice is getting simpler and simpler. Um, it's, it's, it's less about processing story and more about, you know, once the story is received, once it's kind of in the basket, being in the moment and, uh, you know, breathing exercises and and just, uh, just being... Okay with the person yeah
0: so you mentioned glastonbury and just to give a um just to explain that for people Luann and i know each other through tim freak's spirituality group in in glastonbury um, which is all about really accessing this being with a capital b okay which you um you talk about as being in the moment then and with clients and i suppose there's a sense then that that's opening up a deeper sense of self whether you're doing that from coming into the moment as the first port of call and then that is in turn opening up a deeper sense of self or however we're doing it there's a sense of something transcendent so i'm not just my limited individual self but i feel connected to something beyond that and i suppose for me that's what makes all the difference in when i observe my own ability to transform my psyche right because i mean i say this quite a bit but thoughts it's 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 as if like it should be easy to change thoughts and patterns of thinking because you know we could close our eyes and think about anything um a bird an elephant a tree anything but if you try and actually change ingrained patterns of thought you could easily uh, knock a brick wall down or something so they really solid and they can last a lifetime and what facilitates that change for me I, i find is being able to step into that deeper sense of being where there seems to be then a separation actually between Thought and my essential self. So, rather than being entangled and not mm. being able to see any distinction, where it's almost like I am any random thought that's arising in my mind. Yeah, the self steps back and can see. Go, oh, it's a thought down there that I'm. I'm looking at, and it it's not me. Is it true? I don't know if it's true. It's not me. Definitely, maybe it's not true, and that can open up. Is that kind of?
1: Yeah. Related. Yeah. That's, that's beautifully stated. Um, that's it. That bit of difference between, um, you know, identifying with the thought and, and being able to step back. And so I do find myself talking to people a lot about getting a tiny bit of distance. And usually we're talking about some kind of reactive pattern that, that is happening over and over. And they're, you know, and, and, and one day they'll come back and say, you know, this this almost happened and i and i i was able to stop and i you know i had a split second and i didn't do a and i actually realized and then i did b <laughs> and so it that that whole discussion of that tiny bit of space seems to come up a lot in various contexts and and it is about it does translate into behavioral changes um
0: it's something I know it's one memory I have very clearly of one of the first times of going to that, that group, um, and I was having a discussion with someone at a dinner table, the restaurant after the whole event had finished. And I can't for the life of me remember what we were discussing, but we definitely disagreed. Right. So, I mean, it's probably global warming because that's something I often just, you know, have to (laughs) sign him on. Um, so let's say it was that. Okay. So, um, I have my position and the other person had their position and we were talking and then mm. at a certain point they just completely dropped their position and saw my position. Okay. Uh, and
1: yeah, yeah. that was
0: a bit startling to me because it's not something that like regularly happens. And what I perceived was there was the cultivation of a deeper sense of self in the other person, yeah. which allowed the identity to be different from the position of mm. one holds. Yeah. And that that has like obviously psychotherapeutic implications implications for communication and just living as a human being that's not locked into one's opinions
1: well i i like that and, and that's kind of giving me a metaphor that i i will pick up and use is that it, what it creates is a bigger room in which the self can stand in in different perspectives you know stand in different places and and suddenly see something from a different angle. Yeah, yeah. I often use the the idea that um, the reality that we're looking at is is a center of a circle, and we're if we think about that circle having you know a gazillion windows all around, all around it, and looking through a different window, you're going to see a slightly different picture of what's in the middle. So people can usually pick up on that, but. Um, That ability to, because when you think about the moment that you just described, I mean, for someone to actually drop their position and just step over to yours, there's so many other things that are involved there. There's so much much of the ego investment Mm. and, uh, you know, sense of identity with all kinds of emotional, you know, stances and everything that would have to be loosened up and and flexible in order for that to happen. It sounds kind of miraculous
0: it is kind of a miracle when yeah so i mean i i thought about these things in the context of um, the kind of mystical spiritual stuff of having a deeper sense of identity and then i heard um i have a lot of friends who are big fans of donald winnicott the attachment therapist and one of them explained he said something similar about um when we have poor attachments to our parents ideas can become attachment figures so we lock onto them very solidly instead It requires the cultivation of, no, I'm safe. I can put my ideas down. I can put my perceptions down, whether they're perceptions yeah. about myself or the wider world, and I can just be. And I could even pick up someone else's perceptions and try them on and put them
1: yeah.
0: down. Yeah, yeah. And that seems to me to be the essence of therapy in life is to be able to, to, be, to abide in that deeper sense of self.
1: Yeah, 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 absolutely. And um, that's what that's bringing to mind is working with um, college students um, part of my work, I also work part time in a college counseling center and, and um, you know, you're often working with young people who are in that transition period between being adolescents and, and, and just sort of being in reactive mode toward their parents and um, moving from that into a place where no matter what their parents want or don't want, they are giving themselves the freedom to make the choice for their own reasons. And, um, and so that, you know, I think that really, you know, you can take that little metaphor and, and keep applying it no matter what age you are, no matter what the pressures are, if you can, can get, get your balance in that, in that, Space of the roomier self, and and not allow the pressures to make the decision or 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 you know to determine the outcome. Yeah, yeah I mean, well, that's the real freedom. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. it's all
0: right as with, with um, people who are college age, if I think back to myself around that age, I think there's a breaking away from parents, school, and a fight of independence. And I recall it as a time where I became very locked on my opinions actually because they were my opinions for the first yes. time you know like yeah. i chosen them and yeah. fight to defend them and i i guess it's similar then because that's obviously the energy i see a lot with young people they can become
1: right.
0: quite militant right. right most of them will transition yeah. out of that militance some maybe don't <laughs> go for life like that yeah be like a developmental phase at that sort of young youngest adult part of us
1: well you know i think a lot of a lot of us do um I, I guess I'm, I've made a reputation for myself at, at criticizing American culture. <laughs> but I think that, you know, a culture that that is so focused on entertaining itself is kind of locking itself down in that mode of, you know, this is what I, this is what I want because I don't want these other things that are being represented over there. And, um... So, yeah, I think we do. I think, I, I don't think it's really the determinant of whether or not we outgrow that stuff. I think it's all kinds of other cultural factors that determine, you know, how much we really mature. I mean, obviously, we have a president who is very locked down in that mode, right? In sort of an iconic way, so.
0: Yes, I would say so i don't know if you feel how many presidents haven't been i don't generally think of u.s presidents as the emblems of psychological functionality you know <laughs> oh
1: that's that's probably a good, good observation but the current
0: one it's yeah. like the mask has come off to me and you can really see that yeah like
1: yeah
0: very apparently
1: the reactivity yeah
0: yeah um and this is a, a It's a place I'm interested to go in, I suppose, a direction I'm interested to go, uh, because we talk about spirituality in relationship to the therapeutic, so it's very much spirituality and the effect on the individual. Yeah. Collectively in society, I don't know, it it feels to me like people on both sides of the Atlantic, right, are more entrenched in their opinions post-Brexit here and Trump where you are. There seems to be a real locking down. Yeah, and an unwillingness and inability to sh- shift into the other's perspective at the moment mm. or to it's almost like it would be um treachery to abandon one's own positions and dangerous you know there's a sense of like yeah real tension that's more than i can recall it in my adult lifetime and maybe back i know things were pretty tense in britain in the the 80s okay with Margaret mm-hmm. Thatcher, but more than in, in recent years, I think there's like real polarization in society. Um, yeah. I wonder what your thoughts are on that, looking from it, at it, from this perspective of a deeper sense of self and finding security in that sense of self.
1: Yeah, I think, uh, I think you're pointing at the, the co- I think the core of it is fear. And I think that the more the scarier our our planetary circumstances get you know the more people are are literally vibrating with their fear and and that there maybe is kind of a survival reflex to latch on to something and hold on really tight and you know dig in deep and um and and so i see that and i guess i see that in uh in cosmic terms as kind of the program for forcing us to grow <laughs> spiritually because the scarier it gets, the more people, um, you know, the, what is it? The, the translation, the Chinese translation for the word crisis is dangerous opportunity. Mm-hmm. And, and so the more, and, and of course, you know, as therapists were trained that when someone's in crisis, there's about a six week window of, of, uh, openness that is not, is not As open and available you know outside of that six-week window and so real change can really happen and people people are people are either you know scrambling around doing more and more dysfunctional things or they are scrambling around looking harder and harder for you know (laughs) for answers than they ever have before that's sort of how I see and 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 you know clutching on to fundamentalist traditions of various kinds uh, or Um, I don't know. know. So, how
0: how do you find yourself then in situations that might challenge you? If you fall into, um, and I don't know what positions exactly you fall into, but if you, let's say then if you fall outside of certain positions that are strongly held by others, so I'll pick um, Trump supporter, maybe hardline evangelical Christian, yeah, um, as being positions that you wouldn't hold okay and may find i don't know if a the right word but be be adverse to in some ways and yet in your life you must encounter people who wave the flag for donald trump and have got the red make america great again caps on and that kind of thing and right. um how do you find it interacting does the the therapeutic the spiritual bring a different dimension to how you're able to interact with someone off diametrically different views.
1: Well, there's another kind of magical, um, effect that I've observed over the years and it, you know, continues stronger and stronger. And that is that the people that tend to show up, um, in my office, uh, are, are the people that, that i can work with and mm-hmm. um so there aren't a lot of people in red Hat showing up
0: sorry I, I meant more in day-to-day life because I, I guess it wouldn't be that real yeah. in a new office well oh yeah
1: in yeah
0: in day-to-day and, life how do you find in, changes
1: in day-to-day life uh i you know i i guess i'm not running into them that much either but it that's a very interesting question that you bring up because i am. Um, I started out as a as a college teacher, and I still my best friends are still from that that group, and and I um, we you know we still get together um, even though I'm living in a different city now. But um, but the whole question of how much do you want to engage the argument with the other side, whatever the other side is, and I've always been more of a person to kind of you know be the wolf in sheep's clothing and just observe and just just sort of pass and just sort of engage a conversation at any level that I can, not somebody who's going to directly engage the conflict, mm. and And I'm not sure why, but that's always kind of been my stance, but I, but I like that stance because I think you can, you know, if there's any kind of positive exchange going to happen, it's it's going to be through some little piece of commonality that gets discovered, and and that can be, um, you know, it, it might be me that that realizes, oh my gosh, look at this wonderful trait or this this amazing thing about this person who otherwise, you know, I wouldn't be able to even talk to because we're so on opposite ends of the continuum, you know. So, so that, but that I I I really have great faith in that that, uh, I don't know what you would call it, but sort of that village, uh, villager reflex, because I think we have to connect with each other. You know, we from opposite tribes have to be able to connect with each other one-on-one if the planet is going to sustain. Um, so, well, I guess, you know, that's off on another tangent, but, um, i don't i don't know exactly how that connects
0: no it does but i think it it, um connects perfectly the idea of finding like human value beyond the ostensible differences
1: yeah and the, the intellectual arguments yeah 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 but you um i i think you kind of back to the core question early on about how spiritual questions and psychotherapy, how those interse interconnect or or wind up clashing with each other. Is that right? Is that kind of a bigger question you asked?
0: Kind of core question of the
1: Yeah, yeah. And um so Okay, I think I can say this, the, the whole, um, what I get from both Buddhism and, and Christianity, which I was raised in, this idea that the core is, is love. And if, if that is remembered and um, we can stay closely enough in touch with that, then everything else sort of falls into place. And so I will find, uh, you know, just a kind of blow-by-blow blow experience in the, in the office that I often have is um, someone starting out with, with a, a client who may just present as very, very difficult in the beginning. And I may find myself thinking, oh my gosh, you know, how am I going to do this? <laughs> how is this going to work? Depending on, you know, how rested or how how tired or stressed I am to start with as well. But then within a few, I would say usually by the third session, um, of sort of staying out of the intellect and trying to stay in the space of, I don't know, just kindness, just sort of... Uh, Expressions of kindness in a very basic personal way, um, and and I suppose that you know I can justify that on the one hand by saying it helps the person stay safe, but it also helps me stay out of the all the different emotional you know transference places that I might get triggered by the the difficult stuff you know that they're presenting a personality reflexes that they may have and so forth. So, um, and that might be outside of the therapy office, that might be the very same dynamic happening on the street. If, you know, we're over here demonstrating for A, B, or C and the, and the person passing by is on the XYZ camp. <laughs> Does that make sense? Oh, um, totally, yeah. yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's very much a sense on both sides of the spectrum. If, if i could just find a big enough hammer to hit my opponents with to hit the people who don't think like me right. then i win and the internet yeah. has in some senses provided that hammer because you don't it's different to relating to someone face to face it seems like when you move from face to face relationality to posting on facebook or putting youtube videos up the first thing to go is a sense of the shared humanity and you can just be as like right. cutting and brutal.
1: Yeah. as
0: that part of your mind will allow you to be. That's um right. and it's there's a sort of heaviness to the energy of a lot of political videos I find on the internet uh-huh. even if I, you know, agree with their content and um, because they're done with the intention to insult or denigrate those who disagree. And I right. think this is maybe the internet as well as being obviously this amazing thing, which has given us access to all this information and is allowing us to record this conversation now. And yeah. um, also allowing for a kind of lowering of standards of how you might address um, mm-hmm. people. Okay. So I, I see a lot of YouTube videos of so-and-so has destroyed so-and-so's argument and it's that's, yeah. you know, um, yeah. this really kind of, and that's not the worst of it. By a long time. I mean, the, the term "libtard" comes into my mind as a reference to liberal writers, and I'm sure there's an equivalent term on the other side. But that's just one I, it's popped into my mind now. It's not really a productive way to start a conversation mm-hmm. when you've insulted their intelligence and worldview, like right in the title of your video. You know? yeah. um, well, I
1: go ahead. I don't want to interrupt you. No, no
0: that that was that was my. Um, that was my so it's almost like people are trying to they're not really making those videos or those posts to convince anyone else it's kind of an echo chamber where they want they're wanting to reinforce their own opinion with like-minded right. of people
1: right yeah I, i'm aware of that phenomenon and, and i don't i don't spend very much time um you know actually looking into it and being part of that conversation but but i'm aware of it and i in my eternal optimism i think that eventually it will sort of sort itself out and there'll be, you know, kind of a hundredth monkey phenomenon somehow where an ethic will be born out of it, an ethic of of interacting that will be, um, will just, you know, trump that whole, um, ugly, um, thing that can happen um, yeah. as soon as you started talking about it, what I went to was the, it's just like the road rage phenomenon yeah. and I do experience that. And I, I will, you know, I'll see myself, you know, there's some guy in a truck with giant tires and I'll see myself having this reaction and then, and sometimes cooling it and just hanging back and sometimes not cooling it and hanging back. And it's really interesting uh, to watch yourself, all into that, you mm. know. Uh, um, and it's just a thing that it's it's just another place where we're trying to learn to be mindful, I guess. And we are slowly and painfully learning to be mindful, I think. The more the more outrageous we become on the public stage. We have so many public stages now. Mm. Everything is a public stage. Yeah. So
0: and it is also sort the of time that not only have we just gotten access to all this technology in this form of information consumption and creation and um, but also the availability of spirituality and the therapeutic implications of that have only just become available like on a grand scale and yeah. this is like coming yeah. after what has been you know for thousands of years it's been quite traumatic to live as a human being okay mm-hmm. if your life didn't involve heavy trauma Yeah. Um, you, yeah. you were pretty lucky i mean even if um even if you weren't you know dying in a war or sold into slavery or the bubonic plague or something you probably lost like six children in childbirth it's just that yeah. was just one of the mill right so yeah. there's generational trauma coming right down, 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 down and then you can see this kind of like um probably the the latest manifestation one form is anger on the internet you know it's like we all carry this this wave of energy that's coming for humanity and there is also now the opportunity to actually address that mm-hmm. yeah. You know, like, as, as individuals might get to a point in their life where they address their uh, childhood trauma say it could be that human beings uh, as a, a species um, address their uh, childhood trauma if you consider the you know the, the middle ages and prior to that a bit after that as being like humanity's childhood if you like if we're able uh-huh. to, to step out of that
1: yeah, yeah, that's that's very interesting, and the technology, is, of course, is is moving so much faster in you know the way it's developing than we are. It forces us to speed up, and it and it speeds our it speeds us up too. I think because the more we the more tools we have in our hands, you know, the faster we um, we self destruct and or um, evolve. I guess that's. Mm
0: how you use it, yeah.
1: I hope. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's definitely a fascinating time to be alive. Are you familiar with the, the, I guess you would call her a modernist thinker, Jean Houston? I'm not. She's someone that I was listening to. There's this wonderful program coming out of San Francisco starting in the 70s called New Dimensions and mm-hmm. I think it may still be being produced, but that was a big, uh, sort of cornerstone of my, my, uh, new consciousness education, definitely starting in the mid seventies. And, um, just all, every, every Friday evening was a new, um, uh, new consciousness thinker of some kind in an, in an hour long interview. And uh, Jean Houston, um, Oh, gosh, I can't really summarize who she is or was, but um, she was one of those people who was experimenting uh, for the government with um, psychoactive substances, including oh, nice. in the 70s. She and her husband, I think, were working, were literally working doing that. She was also a friend as a child of uh, Teilhard de Chardin. Mm-hmm. And, uh, she's just a wonderful thinker. But one of the last uh, times that I was listening to one of her um, things on that show, she was talking about she would, and I believe this was in the 80s, she would go on the internet and pose as a 15 year old boy and talk to people all over the world. And then she would pose as a different, you know, a different. Um, psyche entity and just just to find out you know what are the what are the teenage boys around the world thinking you know what are the um, what, what is this other group of people thinking and she um, she I guess she gave me the positive spin on the internet early on that it was it was the nervous system of the planet you know hooking up and waking up and that it was well it was capable of great uh, evil, if you will, it was also giving us this fantastic ability to to evolve and become, you know, um, more than we were. And um, I think about that a lot. And I don't use it because I'm really not, I don't use it very much at all. I'm really not that comfortable on it. Mm. I'm not sure why, but I'm glad it's there.
0: <laughs> okay. Thank you very much for the does that sound like a, a good place to conclude for now? Maybe we'll talk again sometime. Yeah, absolutely.
1: absolutely. And, um,
0: I, I'm just aware you have poetry books, right? Maybe we could talk about your poetry sometime, but um, are they available for, for. Can people see your poetry or are the books um,
1: Well, I have a couple of books that I think you can find on Amazon. I have a website, um, and they're available there and yeah.
0: So I'll link Um, to all that in the description box of whatever platform people are listening to this on. Okay. Thank you, Luann. And uh, Thank you,
1: Richard. It's really a pleasure.